Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us once again for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation. Glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us once again here on a Monday morning. Looking forward to the conversation. Good morning, Dan. Happy Monday. So, Jason, to begin, maybe we can spend a few moments here at the top just recapping last week's market movement. So Friday's sell-off did cap off yet another volatile week in the markets. Now, there, there was speculation earlier in the week that the Fed might cool off its hawkish policy course. That led to gains in the markets earlier in the week. Yet, as the week progressed, that speculation seemed to have dissolved as the week went on and we did see markets deteriorate. So what exactly were the drivers, Jason, behind last week's sentiment and market moves? Well, to set the context, let's just think about uh, you know, the market performance last week. You know, what the S and P 500 uh, on Monday and Tuesday combined it went up 5.7 percent. Uh, by Friday, it was down 2.8 percent. And sort of for the on net on the week, it still closed up, but only 1.8 percent. So, like a, you know, kind of a quite a big sort of you know pivot in the middle of the week. Uh, some of the start of the week was just reflecting the start of a new quarter. Uh, oftentimes, you get the end of a quarter, you know, you know portfolios, um, you know, institutional fund managers will rebalance their portfolios, make adjustments. They wait until the start of a new quarter to buy. So that was, I was a little bit going on. But the real story that, that was driving the markets last week, and it's, the thing, it's probably the singular most important factor that's influencing markets right now is is the Fed and this question and issue of, like, when are they going to sort of pivot, meaning you dial back their you know, the pace of rate hikes because they're still doing 75 basis points or likely to do 75 in early November. When do they dial back? When do they even stop outright? So this, you know, kind of pivot to like from a very hawkish stance to something less hawkish to eventually outright sort of dovish. So that's really the kind of the, the central question going on in the market. It's really driving everything. And then also any kind of information, whether it's data points, uh, you know, Fed communications, it's all sort of interpreted through the lens of like, what does this mean for a potential Fed pivot? So early in the week when we got data that was suggesting the economy was slowing, which included the ISM manufacturing index, which took down uh, again for September versus uh, August, but, you know, continued a downward trend in recent months, showing signs that the manufacturing part of the economy is continues to slow. Then on Tuesday, the jolt uh, measure of job openings declined 1.1 million. This is a very sizable decline. Uh, it was now down to about 10.1 million. This is important because what the Fed wants to see is the labor market kind of cooling off and getting the, the excess demand for labor, which is still almost two to one versus job openings, get that Mac more balanced. So those two data points are consistent with a cooling economy and the labor market getting more back in balance. If that happens, it leads the Fed to be able to start to dial back some of its uh, you know, hoggish rhetoric and ultimately kind of slow the pace of, of hiking and do this pivot. So that was the kind of the key catalyst for, for markets rallying early in the week. On top of that, you know, on Tuesday, the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is not the most influential in, uh, investment or central bank in the world, but it's important because they hiked only 25 basis points as opposed to 50 that the market was expecting. And they cited some concerns that perhaps, you know, a lot of what they've done in terms of hiking is still to work through the system. They want to kind of pause or slow down and sort of assess to see how much, you know, damage has been done or how much economic pain is going to result and therefore take a little bit more gradual approach. Some thought is that, well, this could be, you know, indication that Fed is also giving that sort of or thinking that way and therefore they might do something similar if not the next meeting, then the meeting thereafter. So you add that sort of you know, factor, again, it led to the market saying, oh, a Fed pivot could be sooner than expected. Equities and other risk assets rally, bond yields fall. 
on Friday, we got the jobs data that was you know, kind of in line with expectations, but it wasn't maybe as, as poor as investors were almost hoping. They wanted to see, again, more data points of the labor market really cooling. That wasn't the case. Uh, as a result, it sort of reversed some of the views of the, pe- the Fed pivot from earlier in the week to like, well, now they will probably have for sure have to go 75 basis points uh, and then maybe another 50 in December and then even more thereafter. So that's really the story of what was driving the markets last week is, you know, this uh, belief about the Fed pivot, what it might materialize and how every single sort of piece of information is being interpreted in terms of what this could mean for the Fed. So, Jason, you made mention of a few factors, including data points, which seem to be informing the Fed's thinking with respect to their course for monetary policy. I recall on Friday last week, we did receive the September employment report. We can dig into that data a bit here. What did the data reveal about the health of the U.S. labor market? Did the data maybe support the Fed's current policy approach, or was there anything indicative in there of a recession on the horizon? Well, if you just take the data as is, it would show the labor market is still quite solid. Uh, At the margin, it continues to cool just a little bit, uh, but it's still not showing any real signs of significant cracking at this point in time. The other thing is that data came in kind of right and sort of almost at expectations. So, for example, the consensus forecast was for 255,000 new jobs created. The number came in at 263. You know, it's not often you get a number that's only 8,000 away from the consensus expectations, but it was kind of right there. On the average hourly earnings, uh, on a year-over-year basis, they grew 5%. That was expected. On a month-over-month basis, they grew you know, 0.3%. That was also expected. Uh, that's actually good data because what it's showing is that uh, you know the, the labor market, at least in terms of wage growth, is cooling. Uh, if you take you know the year-over-year measure, 5% in September, but in March it peaked in this cycle at 5.6%, and it's been kind of gradually declining since then. It has to continue to decline, something closer to 4%, or even a little bit below, in order for that to be consistent with the Fed's inflation target of like 2%. Now, but then if you look at the month-over-month measures, it's two months in a row where it's been 0.3%. And then you take the three-month in inflation, the last few months, and if you annualize it, it's coming at around 4%. As that continues, you know, the year-over-year measure is going to come down, and that's consistent, again, with what the Fed wants to see. And if it stays like that for a few months, you don't need to see year-over-year measures of inflation or wage growth at 4% because you know the data is trending towards that direction. So that was actually a positive, even though it was right in line with expectations. Where there was a bit of a miss was in the labor force participation, which declined one-tenth of a percent uh, to 62.3%. And the unemployment rate dropped back uh, from 3.7% back to 3.5% where it was uh, in in July. So you saw you know, jobs created in line with expectations, wage growth in, in line with expectations. But the other data points suggest, again, or reinforces the point that there's just not a lot of kind of workers or people out there looking to join the labor force that could continue to lead to job growth at this level or also to you know, see the, the, the unemployment rate go up and wage growth cool. So it was those data points that really they kind of spooked investors, kind of reinforced the belief that the labor market is still tight. This is in contrast to the JOLTS data I mentioned a minute ago that where there were the job openings were declining 1.1 million last month. And over the course of the year, they're down from 11.8 million to 10.1 million. So again, consistent with the labor market cooling, Wage growth is cooling. It's all headed in the right direction, but it's still relatively tight. And I think for the Fed, it hasn't got to the point where it needs, which suggests they have reasons to continue to tighten because there is strength, there is resiliency so far in the labor market, even though there's, there's definitely signs of, of, you know, of the margins kind of moderation. So it's a report where, it, you know, kind of it's 
in some way good news, you know, in terms of the resilience of the economy, but that's not so good news for the markets because it means the Fed could continue to go and continue to hike as you know, currently planned. So, Jason, I do want to take a moment here to point out to our listeners, you just authored a blog titled One Data Point at a Time. By the way, that blog is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for our listeners and our clients. Though, within that blog, Jason, you do list a number of aspects of Fed policy that are vital for Thinking about the investment outlook over, let's say, the next few months, in particular, some of the factors suggest that there is an elevated risk of the Fed making a policy error by over-tightening. And we've spoken about that in podcasts past. Can you remind us, Jason, what exactly those factors are? Well, one of the factors is that if you look at sort of the Fed and its reaction function, meaning as it takes in data, it has to react to it, and then so that data would sort of suggest what is the right policy. And if you, in sort of mathematical terms, you'd say this reaction function is just a constant. It's a single data point. Uh, and in terms of communication, it's basically saying something like, no matter what the data is, we're committed to bringing inflation down and a job isn't done yet. Um, so, you know, for context, you know, just last week, the Minneapolis Federal Reserve President, Neil Kashkari, said, you know, we have more work to do. We're not seeing any evidence of yet uh, that wages and service prices are moving in the right direction. Now, the wage data I just mentioned a minute ago would suggest otherwise. But that's sort of the mindset that, the, you know, the Fed is sort of continues to have this sort of singular the focus on, on fighting inflation. Now, the commentary, you know, you could say optimistically that the Fed officials are repeating the same message over and over again because they fear if they say anything else, financial conditions will ease because investors will interpret that as a sign of the pivot. And they just can't say that. Even if they think, oh, there's some positive development, they can't say it. A less generous interpretation is to suggest perhaps that the Fed right now is on autopilot and they're just kind of plowing ahead saying inflation is too high, we have to keep hiking rates. And this leads to sort of another, not so much factor, but sort of, you know, you know kind of context. They're, the mindset of the Fed back in 2018, you know, different economic environment, but they were trying to raise rates and get back, you know, the policy rate to, to something they viewed as neutral, which is around 2.5%. Uh, and you may recall back in, in 2018, uh, they were raising rates 25 basis points a quarter. March, June, September, December, going into the December meeting, which took place on December 18th or 19th, they were decided to raise, you know, raise rates 25 basis points again to get to that sort of neutral level of two and a half percent, feeling like this is where they wanted to go. This is sort of despite the fact that there was clear signs that the economy was slowing. The U.S.-China trade war was, was certainly still very elevated and escalated. There was risks that it could get worse. Uh, a government shutdown was looming. And equities were already down quite a bit, you know, and just in December alone to that date, they were down about 8% and 13% from their high in, in, um, in September. So and with hindsight, we could say the Fed sort of made a mistake and they kind of realized it because in early January, just a few weeks later, Powell came out and basically he said something to the effect of, you know, we're probably done hiking for now. And the market started to kind of price in cuts and later that year they did. But that mindset of just trying to get to a certain policy level because they feel like they have to, there's some sort of echoes and like you know things that look similar to that time period, which suggest they they may go further and the market's going to sell off and that's going that's going to be the catalyst potentially to kind of get them to move. Uh, there's also this dynamic that's in the marketplace right now, where the the Fed needs to almost be more hawkish than the market to pricing because if they don't meet market expectations, then the market views that as a sign of dovishness. And we saw that during the summer at the July FOMC meeting where they raised, you know, the Fed funds rate 75 basis points. But in the press conference afterwards, Powell's comments were interpreted to be dovish. That helped to fuel, you know, equities going higher into August and sort of the summer rally. The Fed didn't want to make the same mistake, you know, in September, so already at the Jackson Hole Symposium at the end of August, Powell was very adamant, we're hiking rates to bring inflation down full stop. 
They basically said the same thing in September, and their expectation for rate hikes were exceeding what the market was pricing. But I think they're, the kind of the game that's being played and the dynamic played between the Fed and the markets is that the Fed has to sort of do more and more. The risk is that this becomes sort of a tit-for-tat escalation. Any time the market sees some data points, like on Friday, that, that suggest the Fed has to go, you know, or, or, or there's kind of good news like we saw earlier last week, financial conditions ease, so then the Fed has to kind of come out and talk tough again, and they have to outhawk the market. So the risk is they go even further than they really is necessary to blame inflation down because they're fearful if they don't sound tough, you know, financial conditions will ease and the job won't be done. So that kind of dynamic also, you know, hurts it. So all these things kind of push the Fed or suggest the Fed right now being on autopilot, you know, you know, you know just as convincing, they have to go further, and they have to kind of do more than what the market's expecting, biases them towards, and maybe hiking more than is necessary and increases the risk of a policy here, which already existed because knowing the right level to go is just difficult in general, even if they were to leave all the market dynamics out, trying to get that right level is difficult. Then you add this other consideration and it suggests, well, they might end up going too far. And I think that's the myth right now in the marketplace is that they overshoot on the upside. Jason, if we dive a bit further into the blog, it was interesting within you also suggest that when the Fed does stop hiking rates, put another way, pivots from its current policy course, this could be the foundation of a more sustainable rally in risk assets. Why exactly is that? Well, we can see just from last week that any hints of you know, the Fed's you know, being able to sort of pivot because economic data is weakening, we saw equities, the S&P was up 6% basically in two days. So there's clearly a lot of focus on it. Uh, if they do, what the markets will anticipate that is once they pause, then they probably won't hike anymore and the markets will start to price in cuts. Even if the Fed says, you know, we're going to stay at this level for a long period of time, the market will start to kind of price in cuts. You're likely to see rates decline. That's going to provide a boost to, to equities. So I think that's, you know, helps. It's also a little bit different than when we look back at cycles in, in years past and decades past, where the markets didn't bottom until the Fed actually uh, first cut rates, which would suggest the market's not going to bottom until well into next year if the Fed isn't cut until, at a minimum, the second half of this, in, in 2023, and maybe not until 2024. That was true in a situation where the communication back and forth between the Fed was quite different. Now the Fed provides much more information to the markets on its intentions through the, the press conference that Jay Powell will have after the FOMC meeting. It puts out a dot plot of kind of its expectations for rate hikes. There's detailed summary of economic projections for inflation, for rates for GDP. All this stuff has largely been introduced uh, since the financial crisis in 2008. So rate hiking cycles in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, investors were flying a little bit more blind. They didn't know exactly what the Fed was going to do. Now they know clearly, or much more clearly, what the Fed's going to do, and therefore they can react to it. At the same time, the Fed is more focused on financial conditions, and they can have information in terms of what the market is pricing. So in some way, the market leads the Fed more so than the other way around, which wasn't the case even 25 years ago. So seeing the Fed stop hiking rates suggests it is a pivot. The market sort of reacts to it, and that sort of helps provide at least a basis for a little more sustained rally than not just two days, but something that could be more durable. The other thing that sort of would help the market outlook is that in some way it suggests this Fed put that existed for many years, basically two decades, could be back in place to some extent. And the reason I say that is, you know, the Fed cares about inflation, price stability, but also the labor market. Right now it's singularly focused on fighting inflation because the labor market is healthy. When they pause, they're basically saying, we think we've done enough to bring inflation down. Now we have to kind of give equal weight to the economy slowing, the labor market weakening. 
If it turns out equity markets go down much further, if credit spreads widen out, so financial conditions tighten further from that point forward, it's probably more restrictive than the Fed would want, which suggests that there's a lot of downside from there. The Fed might then accelerate when it starts to cut rates because it's worried about then things slowing too far and growth slowing too much, and then you go from inflationary problems to disinflationary problems. So that would sort of suggest there's limited downside whenever that happens. There doesn't mean there can't be more downside. We could have earnings deterioration. There could be rising default rates. But if all that happens, all that, all that would suggest the Fed is going to then provide more accommodation. All this would say then, once the Fed pivots, the risk-reward skew that right now looks like it's to the downside becomes more balanced, and it starts to shift to the upside. So I think investors who have been very bearish, I think that starts to be make them you know, more constructive and willing to kind of step in. So that's why the, the possibility of a sustainable rally starts to materialize once the Fed starts to change its, its focus. Not saying one will take off. But the conditions start to become a place for that to happen. So if there is one takeaway here, Jason, to reinforce, it's really uncertainty seems to remain high for the foreseeable future, at least over the next few months. So what does this mean exactly for your market outlook, Jason? And how are you recommending that investors be positioned right now? Well, I think last week is probably a good microcosm of what we can expect over the coming weeks and maybe the rest of this quarter. A lot of volatility, a lot of swings between optimism and pessimism just within a few days based on incoming data. I titled the blog, you know, one data point at a time because it does feel like every incoming data point could really swing market sentiment because it could be the catalyst that finally causes the Fed to start to, you know, pause or, or actually get more aggressive if the inflation data, which we'll even get this week, doesn't show signs of improvement. So what we've seen from, you know, the past six months, that's likely to continue. But you might even see kind of shorter and more kind of volatile swings, you know, you know, within a week or within a couple of weeks. So that environment is likely to persist. Uh, a lot of focus now will pivot, you know, at least in the, in the very near term, to you know, earnings growth. I think the fear is that we're going to get a lot of uh, not bad numbers exactly, but sort of bad guidance for going forward. And that could be a headwind for, for risk assets, although it's so well known or so kind of a lot of it's anticipated. Some of that negativity could already kind of priced in. On a more optimistic note, you know, the investor sentiment is so bearish, and a lot of investors have de-risked that anytime you get good news, you can see the markets move up very quickly. So if we do see get closer to signs of the Fed you know, shifting its policy, that can certainly provide tailwind later this year or into next year for markets to move sustainably higher. Thinking about positioning, though, it, you know, the, the message stays the same. It's tough to make strong directional calls, you know, given this volatility. So better to think through some of the volatility and noise to like having a long-term plan and look for asset classes that you think and we think that could be you know kind of performers across different scenarios that continues to be that kind of value stocks versus growth. You know we've liked commodities um, you know for multiple reasons. One of them was also a geopolitical risk hedge, and we saw last week with OPEC announcing production cuts. Oil has bounced off that, so again it sort of provided some protection for the portfolio. We think that will continue because again the fundamentals are, are sort of favorable for commodity prices going higher. And then from a long-term perspective, there is value being created, whether it's in fixed income as yields have gone higher. So you can get a you know, reasonably attractive yield without taking much or any real credit risk, either in government bonds or very safe corporate credit. And then with equities, valuations and multiples are getting to long-term averages or even well below. It doesn't mean they won't go lower, but there, that does mean from a long-term perspective, there is things that as things kind of recover, it provides a lot of potential upside as valuations, whether it's in value stocks, small caps, 
or international equities start to look quite compelling. Well, Jason, thank you very much for the guidance there to cap off our conversation for today. Again, I do want to point out to our listeners, our clients, the blog Jason has been making reference to one data point at a time available for you now up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though for our clients of UBS listening in, please just reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. Though, Jason, great catching up with you as always. A terrific way to begin the week. Wish you a nice week ahead. And, of course, a lot here we'll follow up on in the coming weeks. Thank you, Dan. Have a great week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.